This will be our last book of the Bible lesson. We're actually going to spend some time going through 1 Samuel chapter by chapter. So we're kind of ending a series and starting a series uh, this morning. How cool is that? Okay, um, so before we jump into, before we're going to read uh, 1 Samuel 2, chapters 1 through, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, um, which lays out the theme and message of this book. Before we do, though, uh, I want to notice, I think most of you guys probably watch some kind of TV show, and it takes a lot to get a really good TV show. First of all, each episode has to kind of live on its own. It has to have its own plot, its own tension, its own structure, its own resolution. you got to be into it. Um, but a really good TV show does that each episode, but there's also all these other things going on. You see characters develop over seasons. You see little hints of things that might happen in the future. Uh, and all this, when it's done well, you hardly even notice. But it's very complicated to write or even to study. And First um, Samuel and Second Samuel, these are masterful stories. Uh, these are some of the most compact and engaging and well-written stories in all of the scriptures. There are plots and subplots. There is character development. There's this overarching uh, plot. We can learn by example from the characters, but that's not really the main point. Um, so all that being said, this book is complicated, and uh, as we spend time in it, we're going to notice that. Uh, this morning, we'll zoom out and kind of see the big picture. So uh, here's the structure of the book, basically. All right, uh, chapters 1 through chapter 2, verse 11 is an introduction to the book. The author tells the story of Samuel's birth his uh, and his mother's Mother Hannah's prayer, and this kind of will serve, we'll see this next week, but this will serve as kind of a kind of a picture of what God does through the whole book, and then Hannah has the prayer we will uh, read today that gives us the message of this book. Uh, chapters 2 through 7 uh, talk about the failure of the priesthood. So the priests were the main leaders of Israel in this day, and we're going to see them blow it, and God is going to humble them. And he is going to exalt Samuel as the final judge of Israel. Chapter 8 is a big transition. Uh, Israel demands a king. And uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, they were allowed to have a king, but they demanded one sinfully. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted, a king just like the nations in the person of Saul. And Saul has uh, Saul was a good-looking guy. He was over six feet. He looked like a king. He could fight, he was big and strong, but he was not obedient to the Lord. He did not seek the Lord, and we, will, we see that play out in some bad ways. Uh, so, so God rejects Saul as king, and he anoints David as king. And the rest of this book, chapter 16 through 31, will pair David and Saul next to each other the whole time. We will see how different they are, and we will see God bring David, his anointed king, to the throne. So uh, let's see what all that means for us. We'll, uh, we'll see it in 1 Samuel 2, uh, chap, uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, Hannah, Samuel's mom, is praying this prayer after she was barren for years and prayed in the temple for God to give her a son. And God did give her a son. And she gave him to the Lord. And uh, here, we'll see what she says about this, and then we'll... Learn from Samuel. First Samuel 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn 
is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the end of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, just read this passage that is just so full of your glory and rule and reign and holiness and how you are sovereign over all of life. Um, we just pray that as we hear the scriptures that we'd worship you. And this would be a time where we engage with you and hear your voice. We pray the message of this book would change us, that we'd be able to hear your voice, Lord Jesus, and respond to you by faith. I ask that in Jesus' name. So about a month ago, I was sitting at the funeral of an 88-year-old grandma from ECBC I had never heard of, and I laughed my head off. Now, don't get the wrong idea. I wasn't the only one laughing. Uh, this lady was, her family and friends were so convinced she was in heaven and so thankful just to see this life of love she lived. They spent most of the funeral telling these hilarious stories about her. So this is an occasion where, a rare occasion really, where someone was just so clearly a follower of Jesus and lived so well that the overwhelming sense was joy and not sorrow. And uh, on, on the surface, what struck me as I reflected upon this was that on the surface, this dear old lady did not have a life that I wanted. Um, she lived a very quiet life. She didn't have a lot of tangible successes that she could point to, no major milestones, no cultural influence, no big following. She wasn't well known. Um, if you're like me, you probably are a little over obsessed with having success, being known, doing things that matter, seemingly. But second, uh, as I reflected on that, I got the sense that she was one of the greats that we might be spending eternity in heaven gazing upon Jesus of course but also gazing upon her and how she is one of the greats in the kingdom her not well-known love and works and faith will follow her as the book of Revelation says and funerals 
can be places sometimes where this aspect of life is put on full display, where the things that really matter, where how life really works is put on display for all to see. We see uh, at funerals primarily, when you strive for success and you live for stuff, it does not go well. But when you humbly and quietly serve and love others, that wins. We don't want to wait until our funeral to see that. It will be too late. We need to be reminded and encouraged and charged to live like that now, to embrace the way of quiet service, to love people, to put down all that selfishness we live with. And uh, First Samuel, in its display of human life and how God works in our world, um, can be that for us if we'll hear it. Uh, as a whole, this book confronts all of our expectations about how life is supposed to work. If we're honest, uh, we typically think the people who really have God's favors are the stylish ones with great personalities, big giftings, and lots of publicity. We love the spotlight. We secretly despise quiet, unknown, unthanked service. Most of us long for power. Most of us make something like how someone looks one of the most important elements of relating to them. We think if we're, gonna, if we're pleasing God, we're going to get some great circumstances. And this book flips all of those things on its head. The really well-built, attractive king turns out to be a disaster. The God's king is actually this little boy who is so kind of forgotten by his family that he's just like left out in the field when Samuel comes to, to find him. Uh, and David is God's man when he's anointed king. Uh, the, first thing he, the first thing he gets as king is no notice. He's just a shepherd boy in the wilderness for years. And then when he finally gets publicity, he spends most of this book on the run, living in caves, being hunted down. And he's the guy. In 1 Samuel, we see every person, with the exception of one, in positions of power below it. And we see the poor and the weak and the humble and the despised slowly, through the mess, be exalted. So, I think we can find some very useful and helpful principles for life here, and we're going to see how God brings his Messiah to the throne First, uh, so again, uh, we talked about stories, uh, TV shows, and how they're very helpful. And we talked about how we need both. We need those, those episodes that have tension in them. We need that character development, and we need that big plot. So we're going to look first uh, at the characters of 1 Samuel, and we're going to see what they teach. And then we're going to look at the big storyline. So first, characters. In the characters of Samuel, we see that God humbles the proud, and he exalts the humble. And we'll notice Hannah's prayer here will bring out all these themes. Look what Hannah says in uh, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, 1 Samuel. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Uh, if you're wondering what pride or arrogance is, arrogance and pride are this, is this way of life that assumes that I am I'm the arbiter of truth. I know how to live. I'm going to do things my way. Notice what Hannah specifically says. 
The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him, actions are weighed. Uh, but we see also specifically how God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty bind on, or are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. We see mighty warriors broken. We see weak people made strong. Later on in verse 5, we'll see all sorts of things. Hungry people become fed. Full people become hungry. God specifically reverses the fortunes of people. Now, we've got to say in context, it's important that God doesn't just do this for no reason. It's not that God just makes strong people, he doesn't just break strong people for the heck of it or make poor people rich for the heck of it. No, he does that in relation to their hearts. It is the mighty who are arrogant in their strength who are broken. It's the poor who are humble who are exalted. And verse 9 makes this clear. He says, God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. So God humbles the proud, he exalts the humble. And it's not just Hannah's prayer that says this. The whole book demonstrates this. Uh, we get introduced to Eli and his sons early in the book. These are the priests of Israel. If you remember anything from our series, uh, the priests were very important. They, uh, they worked around the ark, this special place where God's presence was in the Old Testament. And they were required to be particularly holy. And these books, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, give this sense that they should really rearrange their lives around being in God's presence. Eli and his sons despise God's presence. His sons, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, commit adultery in the, temp- in the uh, temple precinct with the women working there. They treat the Lord's offering with contempt. Eli, their dad, who's in charge, says some strong words to them, but does nothing. He allows them to continue on. And the Lord humbles them. Uh, The story, chapters 2 to 7, show this. All in one day, Eli, uh, Hophni, Phinehas, they all get killed in chapter 4. And it just so happens that on this same day, God is humbling Israel. Uh, Israel goes out to battle. They're going, they're, there's lots of war in this book, but they go out to battle, and it's not going well, so they decide, hey, listen, we're going to take the Ark of God with us. They kind of treat God's presence like this magical charm, like a, a good luck charm. So they bring, they bring it into the battle, and, of course, God judges them for that and lets them be defeated. And so all at once, God humbles Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, the people of Israel. And then in 5 and 6, in these very strange chapters, uh, the ark of God is among a bunch of pagans. And uh, you'd think, man, God must be defeated. But actually, wherever the ark goes, there is pestilence and destruction and chaos. And you see that God's actually uh, humbling the Philistines, too. That's what he's doing. He's humbling the proud. Um, but the main uh, emphasis of this book in this regard is God humbling Saul. God uh, anoints Saul as king. Um, and he's, Saul seems to have everything you'd like in a king. He's strong, he's tall, he's handsome, he can fight God's battles. But slowly over the book, we see some character flaws in Saul, primarily relating around the fact that he does not live by God's word. He doesn't trust God's word. God promises him that he'll be king, and his first act as king on the day of his coronation is to hide within the luggage because he was afraid. He's not trusting God's word. Over and over again, this does this. It culminates in 1 Samuel 15, where God commands 
uh, Saul to do something very specific to destroy this city. And Saul kind of halfway does it. And the Lord says, you've rejected my word, so I reject you as king. And the rest of this book shows this fall of Saul. He first basically starts to lose his mind. He becomes kind of this madman throwing spears at all the people he loves. By the end of the book, though, Saul is obeying the words of a necromancer. Yes, I said necromancer, like from the video games, like people, people that work with the dead. There's one in this book. It's a very strange chapter, but that's where Saul ends up. That's where his disobedience, his arrogance, his pride leads him. He's obeying the words of a necromancer. The book ends with him losing a major battle and falling on his own sword so the Philistines won't desecrate his body, and they do so anyways. The idea is you live like Saul, you do your thing, here's where you end up. But at the same time, through this book, while all these arrogant people are being publicly and just kind of hugely humbled, God is kind of behind the scenes exalting the humble. Uh, as God humbles Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, he's raising up Samuel. Chapters 3 and I think 5 are interspersed with these little, little pictures of Samuel, this, this little kid, basically, who's more faithful to God than all the priests. And God slowly exalts him to be the final judge over Israel. And David is almost the ideal example of humility in this book. Um, there's a reason God anoints him and exalts him. A few things that happen. The future king of Israel calls himself a flea and a dead dog, about the lowest things you could think of. God anoints David as king as a young boy and makes him wait for years. God promises to him, you are going to be king. Like God doesn't promise things like that like to us, right? Most of God's promises to us are future in the kingdom. But David actually had a literal you this is your job. Like, you're going to be king. And he has to wait for years, maybe, maybe 15 years total. Some of that time he's on the run, living in caves. And what does David do during this time when it seems like God's not fulfilling his end of the bargain? He writes psalms and prayers um, that exult in God's goodness. I think the greatest example of David's humility in 1 Samuel, David gets two chances to kill Saul. In fact, one time, Saul's pants, Saul's pants are literally down. It's a funny story. We'll get there, okay? A lot, a lot of interesting stuff in this book. It's going to be fun. Um, David literally catches Saul with his pants down. He's surrounded by his bros, and they're all like, dude, let's do this. Kill him. Like, seriously, God's put him right here. Of course you should kill him. And David says, no, it is far from me to put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. He lived by God's word. And as a result of this, God exalts him to be the Messiah. Now, uh, these characters are significant. They are not, perhaps, the main thing going on in this book. But we can learn from them. We can learn about God's ways. And the thing that we learn, primarily, is that, that the way life works in God's world is the opposite of what we'd expect. Uh, most of us in here are inclined, here's how I feel, here's what I want, that's what I should do. We, we, we are prone to live that way. We live by our desires and our feelings. This, this, this book tells us, man, if we do that, if we live by how we feel instead of living by what God has said, we will end up with Saul. 
There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. I think maybe a, maybe a good application here might be to start noticing and admitting the Saul in your life. Throughout this book, Saul loves the approval. He, he's not trusting in God's word, so he's living by the approval of his people. He's living by the approval of others. He hears God's word, and he obeys it halfway, and then congratulates himself. You guys see that in your lives. See where it leads. And if you're thinking, man, I wish my friend was here to hear this, right? You need to hear this, right? Um, But I do think David is an example to us in this book. And I think what's important to clarify, though, is David is not just a courageous, humble, bold guy. That's not what we want to get, get from him. David, primarily, the quality exalted of him in this book is that he trusts and lives by what God has said. That's what unites all these cool stories about him. David and Goliath, why, why is David brave? It's not just that he was a brave guy. He, he believed what God's word said about his people and about his ability to help them. Why does David refuse to kill Saul? Because he trusted that he didn't have to do it himself, that God would bring him to the place of kingship. And so he rests on God's word. He lives by what God has said and not by what he sees. That's the key from the life of David. And I think that key helps us to take this and not just make it a moralistic kind of thing. Don't be like Saul, be like David. We can't read 1 Samuel like that. We'll see that in a second. But uh, if, if that's what's great about David, if that's his quality, that he rests on what God has said, and he bases his life on what God has said, man, we, we, can, we can apply that to our lives, right? Like, God has spoken to us in his Son. He has spoken to us in the gospel. He said, hey, listen, if you look for life by yourself, you're not going to find it, right? But, but Jesus has died and he's raised and he offers you life and forgiveness and righteousness this morning. And what we do primarily in response to him is we base our lives, our lifestyle, our identity, how we see ourselves, how we deal with our guilt. We base that not on what we've experienced or seen, but on what God has said. That is the heart of faith. So we've seen the characters. Um, for some people, character development is why they watch the shows. But shows have to have more than that, right? And uh, when we keep reading the Bible, when we read 2 Samuel, we actually see you can't just be like David. David actually blows it. He uh, gets to the height of his kingship and ruins everything. He ends his life as a broken, guilty man whose family has been ruined by his sin. Now, he repents, and God's merciful to him. But we can't just say, be like David. And uh, that lands us in the big message of 1 Samuel, what's really going on here. And it's this, that God is bringing his people a good king. That God is bringing his people a Messiah. In fact, we see this in Hannah's prayer. Um, at the end in verse 10, this, this is prayer, so we could spend much more time on this. But this prayer, at the very end of verse 10, uh, Hannah says that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. If you uh, read the word horn in the Old Testament, you're like, what does that mean? Uh, the horn is a, a symbol of strength. The idea of, of God exalting the horn of his anointed is just, just kind of like what the first part of the verse says. He's giving strength to his king. He's exalting him. 
and that's what we see in First Samuel. That's, that's the main storyline, actually. What happens in this book is God brings his people a good king. Uh, the problem in First Samuel, and we introduced this right in First Samuel 1, we'll see it next week, is that the leadership in Israel is broken. The priesthood's broken. It's not working. They needed a leader. They needed someone after God's heart to restrain the people, to help them, to, to fight their battles. And God, through the mess, will bring his Messiah to the throne. And there's so much in 1 Samuel you can't understand unless you see this. There are all these weird chapters in the middle. Again, this book isn't that weird. I'm just, but, uh, but there's this one chapter uh, where, on chapter 21 where David is on the run from Saul, and he goes to Abathir, the high priest, and he gets holy bread that no one's supposed to eat, and he gets Goliath's sword. And then the next thing he does is he runs away to the Philistines, and they recognize him, and so he pretends to be a madman to escape. It literally, it literally says that. He starts, like, drooling and saying crazy things, and he escapes. And you're like, why is this in the Bible? Well, the idea is that David is in such trouble, he has no food, he's a warrior with no weapons, and he's got nowhere to go. And he's, and he's even making mistakes along the way. In fact, what he does in taking the holy bread gets all the priests killed. But the Messiah must reach the throne. And so through all of that, God's protecting him, providing him, preserving him, and delivering him. Because God's people must have a king. They must have a good king. This happens another way, too. Uh, in 1 Samuel 25, there's this wicked man named Nabal who insults David, really makes him, makes him mad, and David says, boys, let's lock and load. We're going to teach this guy a lesson. And he goes and he decides we're going we're to kill everyone in his household. Maybe the first time in 1 Samuel we see David do something that's not a good idea. But uh, Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes to him. He, she intervenes. She brings him this giant gift and humbles herself. And David responds by saying, well, thank you. Whoa. She specifically says uh, to David, I'm here so that when you get to your throne, you won't regret this. So again, what happens there? God intervenes in David's circumstances so that he won't become like Saul. So the Messiah must reach the throne. God will bring his people a good king. And he does this through the good and the bad of life. Look at Hannah's prayer, verses 6 through 8. I think this, this, is, this, pic, this kind of picture of the Lord's sovereignty is breathtaking. The Lord kills, and he brings to life. He brings down to the grave and raises up. He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, and he exalts. So the Lord's involved in both the good things and the bad things. But in fact, he's, he's bringing his Messiah to the throne through the mess. That those, those circumstances and trials do not stop his plan. And in this way, I think we can see this book is way more than just about David. When we start to put the pieces together, that God has this anointed king who must reach his throne, and God's people need this leader. In fact, we call David the anointed one, which in Hebrew, the word is Messiah, that later title for Jesus, right? We, we see that what, what we see in 1 Samuel is just a little shadow of what God's going to do in Jesus. We read in the Gospels that Jesus 
kind of like David, came out of nowhere. He was born in this small town nobody heard about, and he was consistently through his life misunderstood. Uh, Isaiah said he had no former majesty that we should regard him. He was scoffed at by his enemies. He, he said this about his life. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And worst of all, unlike David, he wasn't delivered from his enemies. Maybe the, the biggest paradox in history was that David, or that, that Jesus lived like David and then got treated like Saul. He was the king who died under God's judgment. And yet, God still, through that, brought his Messiah to the throne. He raised Jesus from the dead. He exalted him to his right hand. He put him ruling over God's people, giving them guidance and help in the spirit, preserving them. And this morning, he offers you way more than some good circumstances if you obey. He offers you the eternal kingdom if you come by faith. So uh, this is a gospel message for you, for you to trust in. But I think it's also uh, an encouragement to your life. I think 1 Samuel teaches us that if you endure with Jesus, you will reign with Jesus. If you choose the path of suffering and obedience, you will get the glory that Jesus has. God will bring this to pass. So look around at the mess of your life, at the circumstances that don't make any sense to you, at the things you're not sure, at the obedience that's so difficult, and see that if you walk faithfully, if you trust what God has said, if you look to Jesus, God is going to bring you to a throne. You know, the book of Revelation, we spent months there, right? God's people have crowns. They rule over the universe. So, as we spend the next few months in this story, see your life here. You're not David, but the true David is your Lord and has reached his throne. And if you follow his footsteps, you will reach yours. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we come to you as our anointed one, as our Messiah, as our deliverer. And we just, we just thank you that you are on your throne ruling. And you are a good king over God's people. You are, you are in fact, everything David was not. And so we, uh, we just, just pray that, as, again, as we go to worship soon, um, that you would uh, come and meet us with your presence, help us to love you and respond to you by faith. I pray that in Jesus' name.